0: to avoid certain topics because we fear that they would reveal too much of ourselves or bore our audience to tears. Mm. I oh, mean, that... I, I have a sneaky suspicion you've thought more about this than I have, but go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> of Let's course see I what, have. let have. Oh, this is one of those classic Greg setups. Let's see where this is going. Because, John, I'm an artist, and oh. as you know, artists simply must express themselves via their art form, <laughs> and I've chosen the sport of hockey to express <laughs> myself. <laughs> My beloved Boston Bruins, who I, I don't believe I've mentioned on the podcast before, mm. are in the middle, as we record, are th- th- facing down the barrel that is Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. It's do-or-die time now. Oh, boy. Yes. And this, this series, John, let me tell you, has been filled with the agony and the ecstasy. Mm. Let me tell you. Because on paper, the Bruins are the better team. However, you may not know this, they don't play championships on paper. Wow, and I did so, not know that. I'm, I'm learning so much about hockey. <laughs> and so, as as these as these things often do, um, we've seen some unexpected results. The the Blues have played a more physical brand of hockey, mm-hmm. and have therefore just kind of wiped the floor with the Bruins in a lot of these games. Uh, except with the exception of Game Three, where the Bruins dominated and just put shots on goal. And that's what I would tell Coach Bruce Cassidy to tell his players is to put shots on goal. However, for some <laughs> reason, they <laughs> refuse to do this. But anyway. Greg is a very technically minded person, guys. All right. Just Indeed in case you didn't know that. Yes, He's, I am. He loves film for the technical aspects and he loves hockey for the technical play. Yes. <laughs> and you know, if if people want to I also want to bring up this point is because you and I are Boston sports fans. We grew up in Boston, and your mm-hmm. sports teams are like family. You have to root for them. <laughs> I, I mean, is, is it our fault that they've been on this hugely successful run, the Patriots, Red Sox, Celtics, and Bruins as well? Of, of course they haven't. However, I am ready to lament if the Bruins do in fact lose Game 7 because well, we, are, we are Boston sports fans, and we are eternal... Pessimists and masochists. Yeah, so we, that's we the We only remember fun. the bad times. Yeah, the whole fun of being a Boston sports fan is because you get to be like, oh, they break your heart. They <laughs> wake right. you up, and then it's like Bill Buckner all over again. It's right to his <laughs> legs. We're cursed, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling rest you. Rest in peace, Bill Buckner. <laughs> I know, rest in peace. And a speedy recovery to David Ortiz. What, <laughs> yes. What the, was, the hell happened there? But I, I believe it was an attempted robbery in his native Dominican Republic. Uh, oh, okay. No, it happened but in he Boston. He recently got transferred to he recently I thought it happened to a hospital in Boston. Best best hospitals in the world. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to, you know, our actual players being murderers, not being the murderers. <laughs> so I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because I I am ready to murder um, some St. Louis Blues players and the referees if it if it does come to that. Oh dear. Great. Yeah. Come on. Like you're you're putting that out in public on the internet, okay? The FBI is going to be knocking down your door. All right, I know. I'd be the only sports fan who who ever talked <laughs> that way. <laughs> At least you didn't do it on Mad Dog. So there you go. No, exactly. um by the way, uh, a quick recommendation: you should peruse a Twitter feed called "Best Fans St. Louis" uh, if mm. you really want to know what St. Louis sports fans are like. <laughs> okay, I've I've seen the clip of the uh, Bruins fans post game like beating each other up. So, okay, <laughs> yes. I, I've seen um, just a wonderful clip that this Twitter feed always brings up is um a young boy in a Cardinals shirt happily greeting members of the Ku Klux Klan in Missouri. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> and they sign off with having a great white day. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Yeah. Now that's giving me the real blues. (laughs) John, you're full of the fire already today. I know, I am, Greg. I'm full of the fire and the fury. I guess we should probably explain why that's important and relevant to this conversation, because we're currently doing a movie podcast. Indeed, we revisit... Classic movies, uh, ones that we feel should be in our repository, if we want to consider ourselves film snobs, mm-hmm. and we've been fortunate enough to find one—a recent classic. Because uh, oftentimes we revisit movies that are decades old and and wouldn't really be, aren't designed for modern audiences. This one is, however. Exactly. We're watching the contemporary, the new gold standard of action filmmaking. We are talking Mad Max: Fury Road. This movie's only four years old, John. Can you believe that? I know, and already we've we've exalted it to classic status. I mean, me and you specifically, but I guess also the critic circle. The critic circle, John. Do you remember the website, The Dissolve? Yes. Yes. I feel like that is where some of these movies were made, or <laughs> I don't want to say broken, but that's where they earned their reputation. Like, if they got the stamp of approval of these weirdos in Chicago who mm. lived life via pop culture... Yeah, I think you're giving uh, the Dissolve a bit too much credence, given the fact that it only lasted, like, two years. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Fair enough. were but... they owned by, like, Pitchfork or something like that? I'm sorry, <laughs> yes. I'm getting ADD on you, but yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. sidetracking you. But yes, Fury Road. <laughs> Fury Road. I... It, it, this this movie literally hit like an atomic bomb that caused a nuclear wasteland to critics and fans alike i i don't th- i i know we all have add now in this current age of social media like none of us can remember anything like uh hey remember when um uh Don- president donald trump threatened to uh, wipe South- uh, north korea off the face of the earth <laughs>
1: Uh, that could have happened six weeks ago
0: that could have happened yes that could have happened two years ago you don't know you don't remember so I want to cast your minds back to the great summer of 2015 uh, when this movie went off like just exploded into people's minds and was later nominated for best picture won all these technical awards and yeah like kind of has kind of earned its classic status now John I was a movie lover back then Mm -hmm. yet I earnestly avoided this movie because I felt it was a sign of the, the the dumbing down of our culture, or suddenly suddenly we're going to elevate this this uh, fourth sequel, excuse me, third sequel to the Mad Max series, one of which that uh, had already ventured down into Blunderdome. That's right. <laughs> wow. Yes. Harsh. the Return of the Jedi of the Mad Max films, one yeah. might say. I'd I'd call it Revenge of the Sith. It was even worse. Wow. Called the Return of the King. Ouch. Uh, Ouch. Thumbs down. A thumbs down to for fans, but. Mm. It is kind of weird that this is our first time doing, I think, a sequel for a movie for this podcast, and especially not within the context of the original. So this is kind of uncharted territory for us as well. Yeah, Um, Going back to why this film, why this punctured the cultural zeitgeist, I'd have to say, because it's kind of an indictment of our times, just how personality-less films are these days, (laughs) and to have something like this kind of hit the scene... That I don't know if it counts as like a grand vision, but again, just something that feels this visceral or has this much panache, this much kind of color and life and spark, comparatively speaking, to the normal day to day. Or, week to week trash we usually get (laughs) in the cinemas these days. I keep, you know, hearkening back to like the thoughts of like, what's a post apocalyptic film supposed to look like? Well, it's supposed to look like The Road. It's supposed to look like Book of Eli. It's supposed to be desaturated and cold and scary. And then you have this movie, which is just so bonkers, off the top, (laughs) like production design, just everything color graded, the saturation sliders turned 150% up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I think that's why um, this film hit the way it did it hit literally like an atom bomb yeah. um now i do and you know me i'm not a capitalist or a corporatist <laughs> obviously i'm all skeptical of that but i do want to give credit to whoever was running warner brothers from this century so far because they do allow directors to basically take their vision in a mass market way uh for mm-hmm. good like say the christopher nolan movies or and you could argue Mad Max Fury Road in fact I would argue that
1: mm-hmm.
0: or and for ill like say uh, Jupiter Ascending <laughs> or Speed Racer or any of the other watches. or Batman v efforts. Superman Dawn of Justice yes <laughs> yes you could add Zack Snyder uh, mm-hmm. Zack Snyder um, uh, <laughs> uh, you could just Snyder. add Zack Snyder <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, uh, I I I want to choose my words carefully so let's say efforts let's no. say uh, okay <laughs> Let's get to the actual meat and and potatoes of this movie. It's a follow-up to, I think, the last Mad Max movie, which was 1986 or so. Follow-up is kind of a strong term because these movies, while they are technically sequels in the traditional sense, there's really no continuity between them. In fact, going so far as George Miller has gone to recast the same actors over and over again in different roles. So hard to kind of say that there's any kind of continuity or larger story that's at work here. Yes, and so you could consider it a reboot because now we've instead of Mel Gibson, we've cast Tom Hardy in the lead role. Can't imagine why <laughs> well, I mean because uh Tom Hardy is a chameleon who can play mm-hmm. he he's he's a man he could play an American he could play literally any person in the English speaking world. heck he could play somebody out of this world, <laughs> and this seems like once again with his voice he's playing somebody who's who's not of this world. I don't know mm-hmm. why he continues to do accents where. He's impersonating somebody with a laryngectomy. <laughs> He's a man of bold choices, okay? Yeah. <laughs> we actually recently watched Venom, and I was like, I just had to keep reminding myself this was a choice. This was yes. a bold choice. <laughs> he makes many choices in, in each of his movies, <laughs> and so he, he somehow goes back to that, that Bane accent. <laughs> Gotham is yours! Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We'll return to that later, but uh, they give they do give Mad Max a backstory, which I was surprised by. This is the first sign that this is going to be a better movie than just your typical like relentless action movie. Mm-hmm. I, I said, and I'm going to say movie again. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a backstory, but in a more traditional visual sense, we don't really get. There's no exposition dump, if that's what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's that's what I mean. Um. It, sets right off he's being chased by this band of marauders and he keeps having visions of people that he's let down now granted we don't know these who these people are we don't um we don't get any of their details or what exactly like say something that he's haunted by his past well he's obviously haunted by his past but he's never we're never given the details and we do see his motivation he wants to work alone from now on because he feels like if he's ever in a team or a band or a tribe in this barren wasteland he's just going to let them down and and cause them to perish Mm -hmm, exactly and kind of the again, going back to the whole idea that this is a sequel, one of the confusing things about the whole timeline of the movie is we, we do know what happened with the post apocalypse. We ran out of gas yep. and this is kind of the first one that implies that nuclear winter kind of hit, that all the countries started like bombing each other and that's why we're now basically in a complete wasteland. Like I think in the original Road Warrior there was still some semblance that, you know, society had crumbled but there was still some kind of, like, evidence that there was a society before. Here it is just, like, the most bare remnants, and it feels like enough generations have passed, we've gone back to a feudal state, <laughs> and yeah. there's very little kind of um, evidence or proof or at least knowledge of the world that existed before it. Everyone now has, like, new fresh terms, and there's a new kind of religious aspect to things that obviously are not evidenced by, you know, or only... Only captured by evidence of a of a previous bygone era or something like that. Yeah, and so that's why I really want to commend the movie for finding texture in what could have been a very kind of bland, relentless action flick, of mm-hmm. like say a Fast and the Furious movie, which has to keep like going back to the well of like, oh, it's like family, <laughs> but said <instead> here. <laughs> we have characters kind of like having internal motivation that's presented in a visual way with uh, with uh, this flat with uh, Mad Max's flashbacks. But then we also have, we also set up this brand new villain named Immortan Joe. He's kind of a worship figure, and we see that people kind of worship these mechan- these mechanics. And we're also introduced to another character named Nux. And he also has this, this motivation to basically uh, uh, follow the leader even into death. Yes. So. Immortan Joe is kind of, uh, he's become a despot. And yeah. again, going back to the whole religious aspect, like any kind of semblance of the previous world has kind of fallen into myth. Yeah. so now they kind of worship him as the, you know, true kind of god on Earth, even though he's clearly like a man who's falling apart. That's there's The production design, again, it cannot be overstated how ridiculously well done it is. Immortan Joe is this pale kind of greasy old man but everything about his you know what he adorns himself with is trying to cover that up he has a breathing apparatus but he's put like a skull on it so he looks tough mm-hmm. and then he has this plastic encasing on his body that looks like it's holding him together but it's been uh, encrusted with like fake abs so he can look stronger than he really yes. is because <laughs> <laughs> this is the same actor who played i don't remember the actors or the the villain's name but mm-hmm. the gas mask you know Play, I, very good with names in terms of we'll get to later like Imperiosa and Immortan Joe like mm-hmm. like very good with with kind of like establishing these names to kind of elicit your delight in this world um, but there are a lot of like different off-putting things you're right that kind of show like how biologically deteriorated this world is um, we find that these women are milked um, for basically for basically their nutrition that's another source of mm-hmm. things and then later we realize that Immortan Joe also has these wives yeah, so the thing, very yeah, the the big theme that we're playing with here is that Ed Morton Joe, in a land of scarcity, basically uses humans as the ultimate resource. Yeah. He's got uh, a harem who's basically like his baby factory, he's got these women hooked up to milking machines, so he always has constant breast milk, and then he has the War Boys, which Nux is one of them, played by mm-hmm. uh, Nicholas Holt, the War Boys are basically his slaves, his warriors, and he's brainwashed them into thinking like, oh, if, they, if you fight to the death for me, you'll be rewarded with Valhalla, you know, he'll take the road of shiny and chrome. Yeah. Um, and again, like, going back to the whole theme of humans as resources, what literally happens to Tom Hardy in the first act? He gets kidnapped so they can use him for his blood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Max is apparently O positive, so he can be a universal donor for everybody. So you have this whole theme running throughout of humans being the ultimate resource. It's not lack of oil anymore, it's the fact that the nuclear fallout has eroded everyone's bodies. There's just a ton of disease throughout the community. Mm-hmm. Just everyone has like malnourishment, deformed bodies, and so this idea that at the like it's no longer the natural resources. Now it's just what's left of humanity that we need to scavenge for and that we can exploit. <laughs>
1: He looked at me! He looked right at me! He looked at your blood bag! He turned his head, he looked me straight in the eye! He was scanning the horizon! No! I am awaited! I am awaited in Valhalla!
0: John, it's already taken us longer to explain and set up the world of Mad Max than the, few, than the movie did. Let's get to why people are actually here. <laughs> oh, yeah. The car chases. The cars. Yes. <laughs> and things blowed up real good. Basically, after after all this preamble, which only takes about as long as we just explained, um, because George <laughs> Miller is a very efficient filmmaker in terms of presenting information visually. Basically, uh... The beloved, or at least uh, two important, Joe uh, Emperor Furiosa, who's one of these transporters to go get gas and take take out rival rival gangs. Mm-hmm. Um, she basically kidnaps the wives and promises to take them to this promised land called the Green Place. Mm-hmm. That's apparently where she was originally from before she was kidnapped. Yeah, so. and that's where the movie actually turns. This is where I think George Miller really wanted to do his Furiosa movie, but obviously couldn't get made without the commercial interests of say a Mad Max movie. So. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because you know, Mad Max was just you know, Buffalo box office back in of the day. <laughs> John, brand names matter, okay? And <laughs> with the thirty-year cycle, we know that there was an appetite for m- properties from the eighties, okay? I suppose you're right. They remade RoboCop, so I know. <laughs> and I, I hear things. I hear there's going to be a Cobra TV series in the works. John, do you remember Cobra? Cobra? Like yes, the the villains from GI Joe? What? No, <laughs> I'm talking the Sylvester Stallone starring Cobra. <laughs> oh, okay. That was I'm, I'm more be... of a tango and cash man myself. Okay, okay I guess I'll take, <laughs> I'll take a cobra on my worst day. Yes, <laughs> but this, this is what we're really here for. The, the, the also what everybody else like kind of was guffawing over, and that it was practical action. For all intents and purposes like this they were literal trucks with literal uh, overly produced crappy chrome 50s cars with now like built up on monster truck platforms and so and so yes they generally did do real results and or, excuse me real stunts and i will say from there like yes another a plus job <laughs> i believe in the opening scene like uh Mad Max's trademark Ford Falcon gets, like, flipped over and, like, already immediately you're viscerally drawn into the movie, um, in addition to having all these other kind of great creative touches in terms of the character's motivation and kind of building out this world. So, great job from there. The problem is from here, it doesn't really stop. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do have a few quiet moments, but... Yes. Um, You know, people aren't praising this movie for its structure, so... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Oh I I'd, I'd say they are. I'd say like the, it's a impeccably done screenplay in terms of setting up character motivations and having things uh pay off because Mad Max gets dragged along with this on this journey. He's got to be Nux's blood boy. Mm-hmm. And he he has an opportunity to to actually take the truck designed uh for retrieving gas and and take off and and free himself again, but he's he's also dragging along uh, Furiosa and these women so you know it's important that the characters have a choice and so he makes the choice even though he's motivated not to be among a group and and hurt more people than he already has uh, he decides to ferry these women to the green place. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about these scenes is just kind of how terse their relationship is. Mm-hmm. And one of the do- and things I do want to give Tom Hardy kind of credit for is that he does kind of play the role very savagely. <laughs> he's uh, yeah. he's more kind of animalistic than anything else. I suppose. Yeah. It. I think it's maybe... He's a man of de- few words for these few scenes. Yeah, that's true. I think that's also to the movie's demerit because Furiosa is also a woman of few words. So mm, it's true. not like it's not like they're... Yes, they're motivated by different things and come into conflict that way. But we only see that through glowering looks, rather than, say, thoughtful dialogue or like little, like little actions. Like uh, they set up and pay off. Like uh, that, the stick shift are on the this truck that Furiosa is using to carry these women out to the Promised Land, this green place, has a, a spike in it to basically defend herself. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, like that, that'd be a good point in which like characters can. I don't know, either threaten each other or trust each other, but it doesn't—it never really comes to that. So there, there's, there's a few, I think, key pieces missing in terms of developing this relationship. Instead, we're kind of just focused on the action, and and I'm, I, was actually happy with this choice, um, establishing the character of these women, because almost immediately they also are thrust into the action. They're not just damsels in distress. They do stand up for Furiosa at many points, and I was like that—that's another like. A plus thing that I think uh, made made critics woot back in the day <laughs> was the fact that this is becoming like a, a, a feminist vision, and it is about empowered female characters in this wasteland. It's kind of like that scene from Endgame where all the lady heroes get yes. together. <laughs> <laughs> it's ladies' night, guys. Yeah, <laughs> only done much better, I'd say. How do you know this place even exists?
1: I was born there. So why did you leave? I didn't. I was taken as a child. Stole it. You've done this before? Many times. Now that I drive a war rig, this is the best shot I'll ever have. And um. They're looking for hope. What about you?
0: I mean, okay, so yes, there are a lot of good setups and payoffs, but yeah, I do want to say, story-wise, looking at the whole kind of arc of it, uh, I don't know if it really completely holds up because they uh, the movie is just basically one long chase scene. The uh, Furiosa and her group are trying to get to the Green Land, and so you have Mad Max who uh, begrudgingly helps them out, and then you also have Nux who. Uh, is a stowaway and at first is wants to leverage um recapturing them to get in morton joe's good favors again but ultimately he's kind of rebuffed by morton joe and he turns to their side as well so now Mm -hmm. they have two men so they should be fine guys they have two men now (laughs) um so the kind of like big middle act action scene is they get stuck in this this mire this swamp and so they get stuck in this mud and then they uh yeah, they have to work together. It's done in like blue filter night for <laughs> yeah, some reason. The dead of Bill f- blue filter night. I <laughs> I guess it helps it's like probably the whole... tough to light in the desert, John. It's not a full moon. True, every night. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it also helps with the uh, desaturated look of the or the oversaturated look of the movie as well. So yes. um, it works. It works. I'm not saying it doesn't mm. work, it's just obvious. Um, and they get out of that Furiosa and Tom Hardy kind of save the day, not without revealing just how rough and savage they can possibly be. Uh, And then once they get out there, they finally make it to uh, Furiosa's original kind of tribe, which is a tribe of nothing but women, naturally. They're very nurturing, but they're also great survivalists as well. Mm -hmm. And the reveal, the kind of third act twist is, oh, that big swamp you passed, that's what's left of the green place. You've got nowhere else you can really go. And yep. it's a tragic moment, Furious. It falls into she the She truly understands the depth of her failure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had, to, I, had to, I had to do it to him. They're going to say I had to do it to him. But. No, okay. <laughs> So ultimately, what do they decide? Well, we've got nowhere to go. Why don't we just turn around?
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: let's just take all seven of us. Why don't we just take on Morton Joe's army head-to-head? And just take the motherfucker over. Why not? And that will never... I've seen this movie like three times. That whole plot decision will never make sense to me on any level. Ultimately, they could have just turned to the camera and say, "Like, well, we need more action scenes, right? Let's go. <laughs> you want to see more cars crash? Let's make it happen. Yeah, I think George Miller understands character motivation and drama from the standpoint, because I believe either the first or second Mad Max film it is centered around this pursuit of a of a gas truck basically mm-hmm. this big repository for gas mad max finally gets his hands on it and what what do you know i ironically it's loaded with sand that's the big twist at the end mm-hmm. and i think i would have been satisfied if this was the final twist that oh there is no green place anymore like it's and all the signs were there for instance being stuck in the mud the um in terms of, in terms of world building, this doesn't pay off either. The people that need stilts to get to get through the swamp <laughs> again, beautiful image, but it's only one image in this yeah. two hour movie. So, well, uh, again, that's I think that's the main point of the movie, or at least the biggest selling point of the movie. It's the world building and that production design. So even yeah. that little detail of the stilt walkers going through the mud, that's just nice little touches. Yeah, window. And testing. I would have yes, and I would have been content if the movie did end there. There's that beautiful shot, and it and the Score swells where um, Furiosa uh, is told that basically uh, the green place is gone. You've already passed it, and she falls to her knees and and, and wails. And so, mm-hmm. like that's the, the movie could have it could have ended there in a sad twist or ironic twist, the same way that the uh, first or second Mad Max film did. However, I think the commercial demands <laughs> of we need more chases. We need a happy ending. Like we yeah, need exactly. to get there, and so and. A few things do set up and pay off in terms of, I guess, Nux sacrificing himself to uh, destroy uh, Immortan Joe's caravan, and then later, we, Mad Max has barely said two words to uh, Furioso won't reveal his name, then he uses his blood to save her and reveals dramatically, my name is Max, in the, in the only scene which uh, Tom Hardy uses a normal human voice. <laughs> Barely. It barely registers in the human voice. <laughs> yes. And I, I will say, I I did appreciate the same, same with that brilliant opening car flip of um, Mad Max's uh, Ford Falcon. I did like the scene in which they're throwing harpoons at the gas truck and using the cars to brake. Same with that great, like, explosion of, you know, the, um, one, the gas truck, like, literally blowing up towards the cab, and, you know, like, that whole final sequence works. The problem is, there, there is a lot of it, and I was ready to take a nap after the movie was done. <laughs> Greg, you couldn't get enough of the guy with the flamethrower guitar? Like, come on. <laughs> That's another uh, t- touch I did appreciate, if, if not outright love. I won't call it love, but... <laughs> This, I will admit, the, the Wasteland is not a world in which I want to spend a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Like, I prefer, like, maybe infrastructure or something closer to the, resembling my reality, not something, not this fantasy where, you know, oh, oh I'm Mad Max in this story. I'm, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the awesome rogue. Or I'm Furiosa, too. Like, I, I don't see myself in these characters or want to be in this world much longer. However, I do appreciate these moments where they show that this terrible dystopia does still have some fun in it. Um <laughs> So I'm I'm glad they still like it still Mort and Morton Joe found a way like hey let's let's be awesome in the midst of this chase I know it's very serious I want my wives back but come on let's let's throw in a little razzle dazzle I mean yeah. to keep the to keep the troops motivated exactly I mean if you're in a post-apocalypse like what are you gonna do accessorize and they yes. do go out with gumption with gangbusters they they mm-hmm. like come on like my favorite character personally is the oil man <laughs> the man in charge of gas town because he's dressed yeah. like a Carnegie like he's got like the pocket watch and the weird little nose thing and then you we also have yeah. the bullet farmers. Uh, they're not called bullets anymore. I apologize. They're the anti-seed. Uh, yeah. Again, just going back to the whole how much society's collapsed. They don't call them bullets anymore. They call them anti-seeds because you plant something in it and it dies. dies. <laughs> 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 and they're just like they have chain mail just made of bullets. And again, it's just mm. so ridiculous and over the top. Those choices work. I will say that this part of my reason for avoiding it in 2015 and why I can't or or, like uh, lightly recommend it today is because this this movie was not made for me. This Mm -hmm. is not this is not a movie designed or designed to appeal to me because I don't like relentless action or the kind of uh, wasteland mise en Mm scène. However, I do appreciate those kind of those setups and payoffs, the amount of creativity and ingenuity that went into creating this world. So uh, yes, I do commend it for. those points, um, as well as the actors doing a lot with, say, a very little, like um, (laughs) uh, Tom Hardy basically being an animalistic uh, Mr. Max, comma, mad, and um, (laughs) Charlize Theron uh, basically being a a determined uh, heroine. So, yeah. Now, yes, I mean, I kind of have to agree that when this movie came out, obviously it lit the world on fire, but mm-hmm. is there a slight overreaction? Is it kind of overrated? Absolutely. It doesn't make it a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. It's just, know what you're getting into when you're watching this movie. You're watching a very finely crafted Dumb action movie. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I won't say dumb. Mm. I'll, I'll push back on that. But yes, no, this is not this is not a revelatory experience. On I mean, dumb say, is in the fact with... that it doesn't have a lot on its mind thematically. Besides going back to that whole theme I talked about with you know humans as the ultimate resource. But yeah, well, uh, also the feminism in a way. I mean, uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, the, the a rare action movie yeah. centered around women. So that's true. Okay, all right. I yeah yeah I guess. Come on, it's post Me Too. It's like, that doesn't, that ain't impressing me much. <laughs> Whoa, okay, fine. <laughs> what what post Me Too movies, John, are, are impressing you much? Oh, uh, Rough uh, Night, starring Charlize Theron. <laughs> uh, You'll always be my maybe. Ali Wong, just crushing okay. it, as always. Indeed. I'm sure you can uh, cite a number of other great uh, romantic comedies on Netflix. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's uh, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Yeah. There's The Set It Up, that movie. Remember that one? No, it's where the two secretaries hate their oh, bosses. Oh, it's the two assistants. Yes, yes. Mm. I didn't. I didn't hear much about that one. The mm. AV club didn't breathlessly write 15 different <laughs> posts on it, <itself>. so. <laughs> Cause it's not very good. No, I mean, it's hey, it's fun for what it is. Again, All like right. Mad Max Fury wrote, it's good for what it is. It, it is good for what it is. One thing I also want to point out is George Miller is just a a, a wonderfully unlimited <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> i i won't say wonderfully but a, a very unlimited filmmaker for good and for ill this is only the third movie i've seen in his oeuvre mm-hmm. the previous two being uh movies i didn't like very f- family movies i didn't like very much babe a pig in the city <laughs> and happy feet mm-hmm. which is another instance of like what what can i throw in there like how much can i like cram into a movie so it's this uh a a a nice family-friendly musical about a a young penguin finding his unconventional talents, but also it's about global warming and and how bad it is to lock up (laughs) animals in zoos. (laughs) But Greg, it has, like, cockney walruses like elephant seals like what more could you want oh of course yeah and he wanted robin williams to play the a funny comic sidekick uh, but he had already done his genie bit so what what could he do instead and robin williams said i know what about my hilarious puerto rican impression <laughs> <laughs> uh greg he doesn't just do one he does two he voices two puerto rican stereotypical characters okay uh, oh great wonderful <laughs> yes <laughs> it's fun we have fun we have fun. yes so, I don't know. Do you have any comments on uh, George Miller's filmography following Mad Max Fury Road? Or? Uh, sadly, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be in agreement with you, which is those are the only other frames of reference I have for his... I have seen Happy Feet 2. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you, it's not much of an improvement over Happy Feet 1. So. I'm stunned to hear that. <laughs> I know. it's He hasn't learned much. But uh, I guess maybe we should have revisited the original Mad Max movies before we, we saw this one. If we were professional podcasters, we would (laughs) have thought of that. I don't think we needed to. (laughs) okay? (laughs) Because based on the critical and commercial reception of this movie, I I don't think it's going to get much better than this. Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't know. The second Mad Max movie is really kind of lauded as, I guess maybe because that was a very independent production. Maybe that's why people appreciate that one so much. That's true, and has those... Moments and the twist ending and all that. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can appreciate it. Lord, but on a later date, just walk away. Yes, <laughs> the Emperor Humongous. I couldn't remember his name, <laughs> nor can I remember the actor who plays him and a Morton Joe. <laughs> no, that he's that's not the same actor. No, it's not. No, he played he played the villain in the Road Warrior, the first one, not Mad Max. Oh, X2. okay. Gosh, Craig. All right. Get your shit together! I know. I, apo- I apologize uh, <laughs> to the commentary at, out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I promise to do better next time. <sighs> it's such a disappointment. Mm. I mean, next time you play trivia, how can you even show your face? <laughs> I, I don't know. I just pray that uh, the trivia isn't centered around George Miller from Augustine. If it is, I think everybody's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate that a lot of uh, trivia nights nowadays are themed to one specific thing. So I went to a Harry Potter trivia Night just a few weeks ago. Oh, oh God, sorry. Well, let retched. me tell you, it wasn't it wasn't that bad, except for the one round where you had to name Fantastic Beasts, because who the fuck remembers what the <laughs> Fantastic Beasts are? Everyone remembers the nicknames, apparently, but no one no one knows the actual like Latin or the magical root word for it. So who gives a shit? We got a um, solid zero for that round. So <laughs> I I'd say that's for the best. <laughs> I'm not. Are you sure of it? this wasn't uh, put together? Uh, this trivia night wasn't put together by the government to identify deviants <laughs> among our midst. may <laughs> people that should be liquidated because they know the, na- the Latin origins of, of fictional creatures from the mind of J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I d- don't give J.K. Rowling all the credit, okay? I'm sure a lot of executives came up with a lot of merchandisable ideas, too. That's right? true. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, Greg. Yes. From great minds, I think we have even more to give. Because we have a recommendation segment at the end of every episode, and that, oh, you want me to carry? It. Well, yeah, Greg, <laughs> okay. come on. Where's the yes and? Uh, so yes, and we call this section spotlight. 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 Spotlight.
1: It's time, Robbie. It's time.
0: Good job. And here we are in, in only, a bar. We've only done like hundred and. Who walks in? Hillary Clinton. <laughs> We've only done one hundred and forty episodes. I can't believe I have to hold your hand through this. <laughs> Anyway, well, John, I'm ready to hold your hand, okay, okay and basically take you to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the film, the school being film school, Ooh. because. I I studied film in college and, and want to say I was not fortunate enough to have this huge repository of information all, in, all available on, on the internet and YouTube, although there was some of it, I will admit. Uh, mm-hmm. Google existed in the day, but I, I, had to, I had to learn from my local library on a lot of these subjects or from it, having it imparted in to me from teachers. Now kids could pick up anything from YouTube, from uh, film school to uh, uh, white nationalism to any subject that their <laughs> arts desire. Ugh, YouTube needs to take responsibility for their algorithms. My poor son got sucked into a film school wormhole. (laughs) Exactly. Now he wants to be a director. Awful. He's been radicalized. There's no hope for him. He thinks he's the next Quentin Tarantino. It's terrible. I do do want to recommend one of these sources for radical (laughs) film school terror. Oh, no. Yes. You can find it. Unfortunately, it's put on by uh, Vanity Fair and the Overlords, the evil overlords at Condonast. It's not (laughs) even independent. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's called Reverse Film School. Hmm. And basically, they profile uh, one of the many uh, positions that you may not know exactly what they do on a film shoot. Uh, The first two episodes centered around the script supervisor and the gaffer. John, do you know what those two positions do? Uh, I know what a script supervisor does. They basically ensure continuity and... uh... Uh, basically are there to make sure that everything logically at least flows. Basically something Ed Wood never had. Um, yeah. <laughs> a, what, what was the second one? A gaffer. A gaffer makes sure that the balls don't hang down too far and make <laughs> sure that the, the drag queens are properly tucked. I, <laughs> I it's Close, John. They handle lighting, um, which I'm sure is also important for making drag drag queens look good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So they, they've started on those two positions, and I'm sure later they'll get to Best Boy and Audio Engineers and imparting why all these different choices are so important in a movie. I, d- I do find it a little ironic that they, they started with continuity, particularly the one that works, uh, f- uh, her name is Martha Pinson, and she works frequently with... Martin Scorsese, who is renowned for not actually following continuity when he (laughs) puts together a film. Okay. Yeah. Um, Because they also do make a – and that's important because they do make a choice. Like, okay, here's – they do explain, like, here's how we keep track of, say – she explains how we would keep track of continuity in a scene or follow the 180-degree rule. So they do get those basics down. Same with the guy who worked in lighting. His name escapes me, but he worked on The Greatest Showman and a ton of other big productions. And he explains all the tools in their kit, like a flag to block natural spotlights or gels to put a different color
1: hmm. on,
0: on lights and and. How to the the key, the fill, and the and the backlight. So you know, you get all those basics. But that guy in particular did bring it around to one thing. Those are all kind of the tools of our trade. But it also matters how you employ them um, in your. In your movie, like the the tools don't make the movie great. It's your kind of intention and creative choices behind them. Mm. So I I kind of goofed on Martha Pinson earlier because Martin Scorsese famously doesn't follow continuity, and the reason he does that is because his main priority is creating emotion and drama out of a scene. Mm. It's not making sure that Paulie in in Goodfellas has his cigar in his mouth from one cutaway (laughs) to the next. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yes. So. I I do think like while it's invaluable to learn these bits and pieces, it's also invaluable to take away why these t- rules and tools are important, and then go and kind cre- of fulfill your creative vision. Don't just fa- kind of mm-hmm. follow the rules. This happens all the time when we talk about screenplays, because t- to bring it back to *Mad Max: Fury Road*, it has all the the tent poles and or struck it has all the perfect points and structure of a screenplay that you would find from sid field or saving the cat or something like that mm-hmm. but it's those different creative choices that makes it that much more compelling like say having nux having a motivation or mad max getting his whole kind of philosophy changed by the or having his whole psychology and motivation changed by the journey that he's going through so That's that's basically what I wanted. This is this recommendation is a jumping off point um, to any young (laughs) aspiring filmmakers out there. I mean, I should hope that they listen to us and they get inspired weekly to be like, yes, I can be the next gridmaster." Yes, you can be the next. I could be the next Louis Maul. Yes, that's (laughs) a good that's a great example. That's the first one I pulled out mm-hmm. of my ass? What, what do you got? Uh, I have uh, Scorsese, because he makes the best films. He makes the best films. You already said Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about uh, Michael Hanukkah? There we go. Who's <laughs> <was> Michael Hanukkah? <laughs> oh, he did uh, Amor. Remember? He does very dark oh. movies. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. The Great right. uh, The Great I Seventh d- Continent. I don't know if you heard of that one. It's about a Austrian family that uh, poisons themselves and kills their daughter. That's great. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ugh, classic <laughs> A Hollywood ta- I know, one of these other <laughs> conventional Hollywood tales from Michael <laughs> okay. But anyway, yes, keep keep shooting for the stars. Otherwise you'll wind up like John and myself just blabbering on about movies for no one. <laughs> Not no one, for mostly ourselves. Yeah. And you know what? That's fine. That's still an audience. It's an audience of two, yeah. but it's still good. Mm-hmm. It's still it's so good fun. enough, yep. Yep. So John, what do you have for spotlight? Oh, I want to recommend a new movie by a new master, Greg. We are talking Dexter Fletcher. <laughs> ah, the, a rising star in Hollywood. I, I do want to commend Dexter Fletcher. He did do one of my favorite movies, I think this decade, called Eddie the Eagle. <laughs> I really like that movie. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: yes, look, he's a, he's a workman. He works stronger than anybody else in Hollywood. When Brian Singer gets fired from your production, he comes in and he saves the day. Yes. If you and have a he- biopic about a gay musical star from the 70s, he is the man to call. <laughs> Not only a gay man from the '70s, a gay musician from the '70s who was taken advantage of by John Reed. Ah, so, there you go. I didn't know he was the the continuity. I I didn't know he was the crossover character between. Yeah, it's like it's like Bond movies. It's like only it's the the same villain carries over. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I have seen both, mm-hmm. and I'll end up talking about both. I'll end up talking about I will end up talking about i do not know why I can't say that film without yawning. I don't understand. <laughs> But it's it's funny, like, watching both movies, it's like, wow, they are pretty much the same story. And then you look it up, it's like, oh, wait, they were playing literally the same character. Okay. Mm. <laughs> no wonder this guy was such an asshole. Um, but yes, I j- jaunted down to the local theater, and I got to experience Rocket Man. Uh, like, First of all, why didn't they call it Tiny Dancer? <laughs> <laughs> that would be adorable, yeah. but also misleading, because... Uh, Elton John is not the spring chicken he used to be. <laughs> what do, I don't know what do you mean. "Candle of the Wind" lit the world on fire 22 years ago. <laughs> I'm talking about physicality. Okay. okay. Um, all right. I, we just have to, you know, air out everything going into this movie. It barely passes the Dewey Cox smeltest. <laughs> All right, that's true. How uh, can how can they still make movies like this after Walk Hard: The Dewey Cox Story? <laughs> well, again, that's what that's what made Bohemian. That's what made Bohemian <laughs> John, Rhapsody. So... Come on, perk up. <laughs> okay, that's what made Bohemian Rhapsody so derivative and boring. Is that it literally does nothing with the formula? Yeah. it is literally like nails on a chalkboard. Like, or sorry, nails on a chalkboard. Bad analogy. Yeah. It is literally like the whole movie's on autopilot. Mm. And then here comes Rocket Man, which knows the cliches and tries to elevate him a little bit by turning it into kind of a jukebox musical. We have musical numbers now, and we have the emotionality of the song coming through in certain segments, certain chapters of Elton John's life, which doesn't make up for the fact that when it's not doing that, then we go back on autopilot. So okay. that's kind of the struggle and the weird thing about the movie is, you know, he's he's clearly trying to elevate the musical biopic, trying to play with those cliches and trying to make it more interesting but then when it's not doing that it goes back to all right here's the part where he's on drugs here's the part where his family tries to warn him here's the part where oh the lowly the lowly despair (laughs) like (laughs) well that's what i want to ask because these also seem like sanitized visions like these are these are not r-rated versions about either like really diving deep into either Elton John or Freddie Mercury's sexuality or drug use—like again—they seem a little like bloodless and family-friendly and too digestible, mm. and that I think that's really maybe the source of your boredom with uh, <laughs> either either Bohemian Rhapsody and maybe Rocket Man. That is certainly true of Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, with this one, definitely, you do get the sense of sanitization, probably because. A, it's not super concerned with being historically accurate. I, should, I guess I should probably start with talking about the framing device. Yeah. The movie opens with Elton John in, his, in a fabulous feathered devil outfit with the horns and the big spectacles, and he blasts through the doors with light shining beneath him like silhouetted Rocket Man, the title comes. And, you know, the music swells, and then we reveal where he really is. He's just busted into a group rehab session. Okay. And so, you know, the music cuts out and we just hear him walk towards a circle, squawk, squick, squawk, squick, squawk Mm. squawk in his costume as he sits down and he introduces himself. And that becomes our framing device. And so, obviously, this did not happen. Elton John did not give up on a, uh, did not stop a concert from Madison Square Garden (laughs) to go to rehab in in mid-costume. No, he did not do that. (laughs) But again, for the sake of the movie and because it's also, because we're, talking about musical numbers here it does feel like uh, well this is my memoir this is my my recollection of how things happen so at least it kind of gives you that distance uh, it kind of knows that this is the more sanitized version and can kind of play in that space a little bit more as opposed to Bohemian Rhapsody which I think is literally trying to you know give you the most sanitized version of it mm-hmm. and again playing with the whole timeline you know we have musical numbers for songs that weren't written for the 70s so he's singing Saturday night it's all right for fighting in 1959 when that song wasn't written for God knows. Yeah. But it's besides the point, besides the point, but going back to the other sanitized aspect, uh, the gayness, the queerness, Ooh, honey, mm, (laughs) this movie's got it in spades. Um, we get our first gay kiss 10 minutes in and we get our first sex scene 30 minutes in. So yes, hitting those act breaks. Um, the, the kind of like lowest point he has where he's kind of like, debased himself in like the most debaucherous way possible as kind of represented as this kind of like choreographed balletic dance number. And all these men are like rubbing him as he like falls over. It's very, it's very tastefully (laughs) done, but at least it kind of like recognizes and it's at least is willing to kind of go there as opposed to Bohemian Rhapsody, which Bohemian Rhapsody implies you can get AIDS just by giving a man bedroom eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I heard in, in a review of uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Basically, uh, everything goes great for Freddie Mercury until he he comes out and starts doing drugs, which are exactly. would the same. <laughs> well, and that's the other interesting thing about Rocket Man. Uh, it kind of implies that this this debauchery kind of comes from a from his repressed homosexuality mm-hmm. and the fact that he learned kind of he he didn't get enough love from his parents. And they're probably, like, they're one in the same. Like, he comes out to his mother, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, mm-hmm. which we'll get into that. <laughs> um, but basically, like, a key moment is he comes out to his mom over the phone, mm-hmm. and she doesn't react negatively. She just kind of admit she accepts it. She says she kind of always knew, and tells him, like, just realize that she'll never understand true love because of that. Mm. and given his whole history between his father, who he felt like never really loved him, and his mom, who responds this way in being vulnerable, like, obviously he felt like he never really truly, truly deserved love, and that's why he kind of fell into a world of sex and and drugs and debauchery and things like that, so. Okay. Uh, but, uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't really have a response to that. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's fine, yeah. it's fine. Um, Again, okay, so his mom is played by Bryce Dallas Howard, Mm -hmm. and uh, this is not my joke, uh, Guy Branham came up with this joke, is whenever I see Bryce Dallas Howard on screen, all I can think about is, why is Jessica Chastain so bad in this? (laughs) Um, And she is not good in this movie. Again, like, that scene I was talking about should be a pivotal, like, gut-wrenching scene, but... It's done by Brastow's Howard, which shows that Hollywood is not a meritocracy, folks. No. So <laughs> no, how many? There are probably hundreds of merited British actresses they could have gotten. <laughs> and I thought the whole point that they cast her was because she's kind of a redhead, and like Elton John is kind of a ginger. Yeah. So I thought she was maybe cast because of that. But then she wears a wig for the whole movie. Oh, so boy. like, n- like nothing ever makes okay. sense. Maybe she had a deal with, I don't know, 20th Century Fox, who distributed this movie. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, so it's, I think for, again, judging it based on those merits, Mm -hmm. this is a pretty bog standard music biopic, but it also has those, you know, flourishes, those fantastical flourishes, the musical numbers, and the fact that it's not Bohemian Rhapsody really (laughs) elevates it to a good time of the movie. So I'm going to give it a hearty recommendation. Okay, So you're saying put money down now that this is going to be a Best Picture nominee and uh, oh. win all these awards. Because obviously it's better than Bohemian Rhapsody, objectively, in your mind. So Again, Hollywood's not a meritocracy. <laughs> we just discussed this. I mean, Bryce Dallas Howard will probably get a nomination, though, <laughs> oh, if, if <laughs> he it does. Probably it's won't. a really dire year. for It's already been a dire summer, uh, both critically and financially, for, the, for, the, for Hollywood proper. But... Oh, dear. Yeah, if award season comes around and we're like, hey, Rocketman was pretty good, then yeah, we're, <laughs> in, we're in trouble. Okay. <laughs> where Where is the Mad Max Fury Road to save us this summer? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Also, weirdly, did Mad Max make that much money? I mean, it made over $100 million. I think it exceeded expectations, mm. which I think were moderate for an R-rated movie to uh, rebooting a 30-year-old uh, Wasteland thriller, so... <laughs> Starring a a virulent (laughs) anti-Semite. Okay. (laughs) Now this was, was this pre-Deadpool, I guess, and Logan, so... Yes. I guess, like, the the thought process was our movies were still kind of like box office poisons. Yeah, I wouldn't say box office poison, but definitely a box office limiter. Mm, Got it. So I mean, speak- really, Scott didn't want his alien movies to be R-rated. Exactly. Look how that turned out. Exactly. R-rated R- the best. When they are made specifically for me, it shows how... <laughs> <laughs> shows how mature I am, yes. that I can handle that much sex and blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so mature, you guys. Maybe. Mad Max Fury Road my favorite movie. Yes. <laughs> Uh, if you felt personally attacked by that comment, you can let us know when you connect with us on social media. Yeah, we're on Facebook. Uh, Twitter, I think, is your preferred forum if you are a, a Mad Max Fury Road stand. If you're a sad, pathetic neckbeard yeah. who loves this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Sh- no. Shots fired. Shots yeah, fired. I John, I would go as far as say also um, uh, feminists who say, like, my favorite movie, you may not expect this twist, it's Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> full of so many strong female characters yes i'll, I'll take a beer please <laughs> <laughs> whoa <Yeah. laughs> maybe those take kind that of patriarchy fans, but. but yes we're also on instagram so you can follow us there yeah what are you posting on there by the way i haven't checked i no uh, screenshots okay uh i every time i go to the theater now i try to take a picture of a poster and then try to think of a caption for it later so okay. that's kind of what i'm doing all right that's my thing all right, all right. And, uh, again, it's uh, visuals. We can do visuals. Okay. We can do whatever we want. Yes, we can. Why don't you come up with some ideas, I, I will. I'll, I'll do my best. But <laughs> okay. we are also, if th- those are kind of somewhat impersonal methods of communicating with us. If you do want to get a little bit more intimate, go ahead, send us an email, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com, where we do take recommendations, feedback, questions, and uh, we, maybe we'll read them on air. Yeah. Even though this isn't you really could. air. This is, uh, <laughs> unless you consider Wi Fi now the air. <laughs> It's, it's airwaves, That's true. you know, making sound and into your eardrums, so yeah, technically it's, we're on the air.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We're live from the Spiring Snobs headquarters. Listen, I mean, if we do that for you, we give you an hour of mm, okay-ish conversation <laughs> for free. So we do this favor for you. Can you do a favor for us? Go to your podcast service of choice, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Give us a rating saying, hey, these guys are great, five stars, and then more people will find it, the show, and we can keep doing it. We'll feel validated, and so (laughs) we'll be motivated to keep doing, putting out okay-ish content like this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe once we realize that we have more of a following than we really do, maybe we'll feel obligated to do better. Yes. Because right now, we're kind of at a perfect mediocre level. And so if you want us to get better, you're really going to have to motivate us and give us those five-star ratings. Absolutely. So, I mean, we're, kind of, we're millennials, so we need that kind of positive feedback. We need those trophies, you know, those participation ribbons yes. and stuff like that. So, yeah. so please, five stars. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And again, we do take recommendations. We do set a schedule for the movies we're going to watch. So we are taking more. But John, why don't you fill folks in on what we're watching next week? Well, Greg, we've already gotten a taste of what modern action looks like. Let's see what action looked like back in the day, in the 1960s, where everything was black and white and dreary. Yes. What do you but say? But also revolutionary. So mm. we're going to be looking at a revolutionary period from the era, and that is 1966, Battle of Algiers. Mm. The, the gold watermark of action films, I assume. <laughs> well, maybe not. More like a, we're getting back into a more realistic vision. I, I believe they used – it's a movie I've wanted to see for a long time. It's a movie that I believe used the kind of documentary techniques to really portray uh, a revolution going on in colonial – or at least the former French colony at this point. So, mm. Okay. So it was like the, the Jason Bourne of its day. Yeah. That's a, that's a great mm. point, John. Yes. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm full of so many good points. Indeed you are. And you can look for more of those the following week. Um, until then, we're out of here I gotta go <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, thank you everybody for listening And until next time Keep aspiring <laughs> Oh, that was terrible yeah, that was, I, uh, was I should so do a different Tom Hardy know. I'll do Venom Tom Hardy hey, keep, <laughs> aspiring. <laughs> keep aspiring well, I, I feel like Bane voice is a obvious no, Keep aspiring Keep <laughs> aspiring, keep <laughs> aspiring. Gotham is yours
1: Cause it on to you like Knock, knock, let the devil in, malevolent as I've ever been. Head is spinning, This medicine. Screaming, Nick nick nick. let us in. nick like a solid ball. Let your Allen pole bed ridden. Should have been dead a long time ago. Liquid Tylenol, gelatin. Sneak my skeletons melting. Wicked, I get all...